Guys, the title sponsor of my podcast is GoHunt.com Insider, and they're doing a 30-day free trial exclusive for the J. Scott Outdoors podcast listeners. Go to GoHunt.com forward slash J. Scott and click on the blue free trial button and go through the steps. It only takes a couple of minutes. You will be required to provide a credit card, but you will not be charged until after the free 30 days. You can cancel at any time within the first 30 days to prevent being charged. If you have any questions at all, you can email freetrial at gohunt.com and someone from the GoHunt team will promptly respond. This is your opportunity to see what all the buzz is about and the filtering 2.0 system and the application strategies for the Western Hunter. I have known the owners of the Outdoorsmans in Phoenix for over 20 years. They are the authority on optics and hunting gear. Outdoorsmans is the leading designer and manufacturer of high-quality tripods, mounting accessories, and pack systems for all hunters. Their customer service is the best in the business. Go to Outdoorsmans.com or call 1-800-291-8065 and use the J. Scott promo code to receive 10% off any products. That place sounds awesome. Uh, the hospitality sounds unreal. The accommodations, I'm curious, um, like what was it like sleeping arrangements? What, you know? So this was a pretty good sized place. I don't know exactly square footage, but uh, again, the, the three boys, uh, the hunter and his wife, me, and we all had individual rooms. Uh, my particular room had two beds in it. Uh, it had heating. I used the heating. It was cold at night, real cold. Like what kind of Fahrenheit temperature would you say it was uh, at night? Like 30s. what would the low be? 30s. Okay. So it was cold. Uh, when we got up to Tams, it was a little bit colder, but it was 30s. And uh, and you did get a bit of a breeze and, you know, you're coastal there still. So you're going to get that kind of that, um, that uh, I guess, onshore breeze. And so it was it was really cool. It was really cool. Um, they had Wi-Fi. The kids loved that. It wasn't the fastest thing in the world, but they could check emails and you know, these guys are young businessmen, so they're all trying to stay current, you know, even being from yeah. home playing. And uh, anything you wanted was available if you needed snacks or drinks or anything. And then all that was what we're used to, Coke, Diet Coke. Um, I, I'm not a drinker, but they did not care for their beer. I think these guys were beer snobs. Uh <laughs> <laughs> but, but they had anything you needed. They they had available uh, televisions. The lodge was adorned with trophies, so it was really nice to walk around and go. You know, that's a, a a copper, a white, and a common Springbuck ram. You could you could physically see it. And after a couple of days of being in there, I think that's what helped me identify animals was seeing them in the lodge and identifying with what stuff was. Um, very comfortable, very open. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, I think we could probably talk for forever too. But the one thing that was really neat in, a, in, in every house or every lodge down there in Africa, there's a barbecue built into the wall in the house that they that they burn hardwood on and do a barbecue like every Friday night. And if you can envision taking your fireplace and pull it off the ground two foot and then put a grill in the middle of your fireplace, that's essentially what it is. Wow. Oh, it's awesome. And amazing so we, how do they how do they season their meat there uh a lot of olive oil right so everything gets a lot of oil they use a bunch of citrus i tasted a hint of curry they were telling me there wasn't much curry in there and um just like we would but they use a lot of really good reduced wine sauces 
and things of that nature. Uh, this this particular group there in Blaukrantz um, is very English, so it was very English foods like meat and three vegetables and a bread. Um, they ate a lot of pumpkin instead of uh, – it tasted very much like our uh, sweet potato, but it was a lot of pumpkin, broccoli, cauliflower, green beans. Um, there was never any shortage of food or, hey, man, I just don't like this dish, right? Um, breakfast was very simple. Uh, toast, cereals, things like that. Lunch was like a heavy breakfast. So you'd get bacon and eggs and waffles and things of that nature. We weren't really eating sandwiches for lunch like we were used to. And then dinners were heavy meats and always had dessert, uh, which is my favorite time of day, right? <laughs> as soon as you drop... You've never, you've never met a dessert you don't like. <laughs> never. And they would have... Uh, they call everything, not everything, but they call a lot of things pudding. So there was like like bread puddings with uh, vanilla custards and fresh guava pudding that they made their um, cakes and brownies. And I don't know how much weight I put on on this trip, but I'm telling you, every pound was totally worth it. <laughs> <laughs> it was totally worth it. Oh, man, that's awesome. And then so from there, you guys went to another place? Yeah, so from there, we drove about three and a half hours, and we went into an area they refer to as the Karoo. And I just remember hearing and saying that, but I, I, I haven't done any research to kind of look up and see what that means. But the topography changes. You go. So which direction are you driving? I think we're going north. Okay. I think we're going north. And you go from that choked uh, bush felt to more of that plains type environment, which you're used to seeing in African films. In uh, this place we hunted with Tam Safari, was the Tam family. Um, they are of Chinese descent. They're several generations South African, but they, they look Chinese and they sound South African and they are awesome people. This particular outfit, and, and they wouldn't mind me saying one way or the other, Blaukrantz family and the Tams family are very close, two different businesses. But what Tams really specialize in is really quality animal in a really, really fancy environment. So when we got to Tams, again, beautiful rooms, fancy showers, chocolates on the bed, robes and slippers, that type of stuff, <clears throat> very comfortable. They just didn't miss a beat. You know, you never had an empty drink. You were never hungry. You were, you know, you didn't lift a finger, which is not, <laughs> I'm not real good in that environment, but uh, I learned to get used to it in a hurry. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was good when we got to Tams. It was more open plains. And we were on that hunt there. The agenda was we were going to um, hunt a Cape Buffalo and then we were going to dart a black rhino and then the boys were going to shoot a few things. And the the rhino darting thing is was kind of, I don't want to say invented, but kind of pioneered from these guys. And going back to that whole thing of if animals don't have value, people aren't going to keep them around. And there's this huge thing about the rhino being poached all over everywhere and it's endangered and all this stuff. Well, most of those rhinos that are there are privately owned these guys own 40 or 50 rhinos in this huge vast land and they need a way to be able to keep them there because they like having the rhinos they like having rhino reproduction and all that stuff but 
And what kind of rhino are we talking about here? We, there's whites and blacks on the property. We were going to, we darted a black rhino. Um, okay. I'll give you a quick distinction between the two. So white rhinos are grass eaters and, and they get to about 6,000 pounds. Um, the black rhino is a browser and he gets to about 3,000 pounds. The difference is the white rhino is, I'm going to say fairly docile, right? Not too dangerous. The black rhino is just double pissed. He woke up mad at the world, <laughs> and it could arguably be the very most dangerous hunt in all of South Africa is the actually rhino darting. So uh, first day we got there, we had a bunch of rain, and the next morning we were going to hunt Cape Buffalo. So we went out, shot the rifles, got ready to go. Oh, and I didn't tell you. The boys were shooting a 25 out 6, and the... Uh, the gentleman that took me, he's shooting a 375, uh, nice. big gun. And so we got there, we shot the rifles that first morning and we were off in this Cape Buffalo hunt, which we thought would take a couple of days because they just get down in these, uh, in these, you know, acacia trees and this nasty stuff. And you got to kind of crawl in there tight and then look them over and, and hope they don't get you before you get them. And, we were really fortunate in the fact that because of all that rain and weather the night before, they kind of were on the outskirts of that brush, and we got to look over a bunch of them from a distance, which is more the hunt that I'm familiar with, found a really old big bull and decided that was the target and uh, took most of the day. But we went down in there and, um, and got him killed, and it was a, it was a fantastic hunt. That dangerous – Game hunting is, it didn't really turn me on as the camera guy, right? I think having a gun in your hand would be a lot more alluring than, than chasing them with a camera. But um, you could just tell that's an animal that's very aggressive um, if cornered. And it was cool. He shot a beautiful bull. Yeah, I'm looking at the photo here on Instagram. It's it's an awesome looking bull. He's huge. And, uh, you know, scoring that stuff and judging those animals, I would say that one of the hardest animals to judge in North America would be like a, a Rocky Mountain Billy or, or an antelope. Uh, but when I got over there, I'm like, these things all look the same, right? I mean, everything looks the same. And there was all the little minute details that they would look at and could identify a old mature bull versus a not so mature bull. And, you know, the top of the head, uh, the top of the horn there is considered the boss. And the measurements are length of the horn and then width of the boss. And if there's hair between those bosses, right and left, typically it's a younger, it, it's a younger bull. And then like any horned animals, right, they'll start to broom a little bit. They'll start to kind of wear down a hair um, and then they'll just increase in mass. I don't know how old that bull was, but he said by far the 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 heaviest bull that they've ever killed, and uh, it was neat. We just slipped in there. I don't, you know, none of these. They, oh, I know that bull, or I know, you know, like we'll identify a deer or a sheep or something like that. None of that happens here, you know. It's like, oh, I don't know if I ever seen that one. He's the one we want. And how big of a property is this place? This place is. Um, all total, I don't know, but this piece of property, one right here, is about uh, 30-some square miles. Okay. 30-some square miles. It's big. Um, you know, one of the other things that they were saying, too, if, uh, you know, say, a, I don't know, um, 
uh, a particular animal, say it's a diker, if his home range is a mile and he's in a 30 mile enclosure, essentially, was he ever in the fence? And I'm like, well, <laughs> just depends. I watched some dikers run underneath, so I don't think it matters at all. But I think uh, <clears throat> when you get into the dangerous game, they'll actually, like lions and stuff, they'll actually electrify those fence in order to try and discourage them from getting out. But it happens a bunch. So that was the first day we uh, wound up taking that buffalo. It was a fantastic hunt. That film will be up for sure. And then we had a day in between where the boys actually um, were going to hunt red hartebeest. And on that particular hunt, man, we had just seen everything under the sun, sables and roan and oh, just, just, there's just so, you're kind of blown away by like, man, how, how do they all coexist so well, right? They just, they just do. You'll see areas that hold impala and areas that hold springbuck and then areas that hold this. And after a while of doing it, you can just kind of identify this is, you know, this is a, that spot and that spot and, uh. Bring your glasses, you know, you can, in that country there, you can pick it apart. You can, you can really use, uh, you can really use your binos to your advantage. Yeah. It looks like in the pictures, looks like there's mesas and mountains and yeah. high points and this, all of that. this place for sure. Very much for sure. Um, and then the, uh, I think it was the third day there, maybe the fourth day there, we were going to do the rhino darting. And I said, get me up to speed on this because I've seen it. I watched Jim Shockey do it a few times, and I've seen some others. And um, the black rhino is endangered, and I'm not sure if the white is, but the black rhino is endangered. And they have, between their land, I think they own six of them. Um, they have had a little trouble with poaching. People get in there and poached a few rhinos. Um, and, you know, it's for the sell of the horn. There's no way around it. Rhinos are according to them, really easy to raise. They're not too hard to manage. They're, they're an easy animal to kind of deal with and get numbers up. But if there's, we don't want to get them numbers up if we can't do anything with them. Meaning if I can't afford to have them here and feed them, not interested. So these guys came up when they stopped hunting them, they came up with the rhino darting. So essentially a green hunt. Annually, they will <clears throat> vaccinate, inoculate, kind of find a way to check on these, um, check on these rhinos, whatever the deficiency is in the feed, they can kind of help give them a boost. So they would have a vet fly in, tranquilize them and do their thing naturally. And they came up with the idea of might as well let an, uh, a hunter run and do the spot and stalk and the darting. And then we'll take a trophy shot, making clear that it's a green hunt. We'll do our inoculation, this and that, and then off we go. Animals essentially unharmed and full of antibiotics or, or, or whatever, the, um, whatever they need. And I was like, okay, sounds cool. And they've got away from letting the hunter shoot a tranquilizer dart. Now he shoots what they call a Vita dart, and the vet delivers the... Um, delivers the uh, tranquilizer so here's how the hunt goes and, uh, and again arguably this is the most dangerous hunt in the world you got to find these black rhinos and they're not easy to find we hunted uh, two-thirds of the day in an area that had three or four of them in there and we never could find them i didn't care for that hunt so much because we were covered up with lions and lions and i don't get along <laughs> well especially when i'm just holding the camera 
So we left that property and got a call from one of the staff members that had seen a black rhino feed off into this area. So we run over there and uh, we're carrying a 500 nitro double barreled gun, the, the professional hunter is, and then we're holding a dart gun that shoots about 30 yards. And we watched this rhino slip into this stuff and get down in a really thick brushy area. And the professional hunters like, don't say a word. Matter of fact, he wouldn't let me bring my DSLR because when you turn it on, you can hear the you can hear the shutter open. And he says it's too much, we'll get trampled. He'll gore somebody. No tripod, no just a handy cam. So we slipped down in there, and I don't know how we got in there undetected, but we got about 30 yards. How many of you? Three of us. So four four of us, technically. We had one guy stay back just a little bit because there was too much. So we had the professional hunter, the shooter, the tracker, and I. There was four of us, yes. So we slip up in there and lace this little Vitadart through the bush, and this thing jumps up like it's going to kill all of us. He just says, you know, he told us before, don't move. They don't have great eyesight, just don't move. And he kind of looked around and off he went. <clears throat> they get right on the phone, call the helicopter. I mean, they're they're up in the air in like a minute, right? Within five miles or so of wherever we're, you know, wherever we're at. They're up in the air. They identify, they go in, the vet does the tranquilizing. This rhino kind of gets out into an open area. And they go out and kind of lasso the back leg, trip him and get him down. And I was like, this is crazy, right? It was, to me, it was scary. It was crazy, but it was also exhilarating. What's the rhino doing? He's just, you know, he... Going ballistic? No, no, no. He's, he's uh, you know, he's Drug. he's doped up. So his head's kind of on his joint to where, you know, he's trying to get it together. I asked him, I said, is this a regular thing for him? And he goes, no, no, no. Maybe, maybe, maybe... He gets darted once every year, every two years, if it's even him. It's not, this is not commonplace for these guys. They don't know the drill. You know, this is just, they're essentially completely wild. So he kind of just, his head's on a hinge and they, they kind of just, just pull his leg to where he kind of goes on all fours and he just lays there and rest. And we go over and um, set up just to kind of take a trophy shot. You kind of get to see like that's the reason, that's the thing that sold me is I was going to go to Africa and I was going to see a rhino, a live rhino on the ground and be able to kind of experience that. And that was really cool to me. So we set up, we took trophy shots. I did not post that photo as of yet because people just don't understand it. I want to be able to tell the story um, right. via the film before I put it up. <clears throat> um, anyway, so we do our thing. The how big was it? This was about a 2,500 pounder, um, which is small in relationships to rhinos, but to just a giant critter. <laughs> and they are, you can just see the mean in their eyes. And um, horn was on, horn was beautiful. We weren't going to dehorn because of where they were. Um, they didn't really have problems in that area because the dehorning essentially discourages the poaching and it's real, real, real popular. They can grow that horn about seven times in their lifespan. Something I didn't know. Wow. Once they, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, when they're trying to, you know, when they got them in the parks and the areas where they really get poached, they can cut them off. It's not just a one shot deal. They're going to have to do that again. Um, so they, anyway, they let, let's actually take a quick sure. break here. 
PhoneScope is a company that makes custom-molded, precisely engineered smartphone digiscoping adapters. Photographing wildlife has never been easier. It is simple to text photos and videos from your smartphone and share them with your friends. PhoneScope stands behind their product with a 100% money-back guarantee. Get yours now by using the JScott16 promo code and receive 10% discount on all purchases. Check them out at Phonescope, that's P-H-O-N-E-S-K-O-P-E dot com, or on Instagram, at Phonescope. Real Game Calls, featuring the Elk Reel. Real Game Calls makes innovative, realistic, and easy-to-master calls using their proprietary, revolutionary design. They are located and manufactured in Gypsum, Colorado. Their calls were designed and battle-tested on some of the hardest-hunted terrain on Earth. Check out ElkReel.com. Use the promo code JSCOTT and receive a 20% discount on all purchases. Go to www.ElkReel.com. Anyway, so we uh, we set up, we take trophy shots, we do our thing, and it's, I mean, we get like two, three minutes. He didn't want much more than that because ultimately they wanted to get this animal back on his feet and comfortable just, you know, as quick as they can. And um, and, and so we did. So you, I have film of everything going down, right, from the from them kind of getting him tripped up to settle him down. He literally just kind of goes down real soft. They lift his head, put it under rocks, what's up? And then... Um, he has everybody kind of get up and get back on the vehicles because it's now it's very very dangerous. Um, pull the dart, pull the tranquilizer. We give him his shots. The vet gives him his shots of whatever he's getting. Um, and when I finish that film, I will actually have a conversation with that vet and find out exactly what it is and what they're looking for. Um, then they use like a purple, looks like purple spray paint, but it's like a purple iodine where the dart would go in. Um, any sort of scuff or injury that he's got on him, they'll give it a little spray. And then there's a big vein in his ear and they'll inject that wake up juice on it. And it's like, um, 30 seconds, 30 (laughs) seconds. And he's ready to go. Matter of fact, we had two vehicles and the helicopter, the vehicles, everybody was kind of standing by and the helicopter was 40 yards, maybe 50 yards total. The vet gave him the shot in his ear, and he was going to go to the helicopter, and he, st- 40 yards, stopped short and came to the vehicle because it was too dangerous. Wow. Like, good night. And he was up. He was coherent, and he was kind of, he was kind of lumbery. He wasn't, you know, it wasn't one of those, oh, man, we're in trouble. He's going to gore the truck. He was just kind of lumbery. And... um how far are the vehicles from the animal? Uh, maybe at this point we're probably um, thirty yards from the rhino with the vehicles, and then the and the helicopter is another forty yards beyond that. Um, so I was able to get some good film, but it was hurried. They didn't, you know, it's kind of one of those. This isn't about a story anymore, right? This is about this animal. Just <clears throat> sorry, you're not getting. They didn't say that, but it's like we don't have time to, to to film this, right? Just leave him be. Let him get back in there and. Right. It was so. What'd you guys do? Drive off? Yep. We essentially drove off. We, you know, maybe ten minutes of kind of shuffling stuff in the vehicles and watching all that stuff. But he was literally up and feeding um, within, you know, kind of back to where he came from in about ten minutes. And I was like, "That's crazy cool, right?" This was really. I mean, that was a neat experience. And 
whatever the dollar amount was, and I don't know what the dollar amount was, but that was enough for that landowner in order to keep continuing to watch over, feed, let those animals breed on his pop property. So in the big picture of things, that was a great way to do it, you know, because um, there's really no other way to do it. Like if they wouldn't let them hunt them, they would just essentially have to get rid of them. It doesn't make any sense to just feed them and have to, you know, to take care of them. Right. So, yeah, that was super neat. And then, you know, we went back to the lodge that night <clears throat> and every meal there is five star. I mean, really, really top notch. And they had a big ceremony for um, the hunter. They brought the family out and they had a bunch of uh, uh, African ladies and kids singing uh, that Lion King song. Um, in the jungle, the mighty jungle, the Ryan walks tonight is how the song went. And it was cool, man. Just a great experience. And they, um, they recognized him for two of the big five being Cape Buffalo and the Rhino. You know, the, the picture you looked at online there of his Cape Buffalo, they literally had a label printed and put it on a beautiful bottle of wine in a, in a, in a case that was all scrolled. And it was just really, really, really first class all the way around yeah it sounds like it um just an amazing experience i think to to get to see all that stuff and and then get, to get the dart a rhino man what an unbelievable deal <laughs> it was it was really cool uh i would definitely recommend it um you know this particular guide our professional hunter that was with us uh, he's been around tons and tons and tons of dangerous game hunting his whole life, right? He had been around lots of lions and elephants and Cape Buffalo, just a ton of it. And he said, this is by far the hardest hunt on him emotionally, physically, you know, he's focused. It's, he says the most dangerous. And he said, um, if a guy thinks this is just a walk in the park, he's, he's fooling himself. So if you ever wanted or had a desire to chase a rhino, I would strongly suggest you go this route. Uh, cause there is nothing easy about it. Nothing. Wow. And then did you guys hunt anything else there? Yeah, we did. Um, you know, I was really fortunate in the fact that uh, my host was being generous and said, hey, you know, I'd like you to be able to do some shooting. You're a hunter too. And I played the, you don't really need to do that for me, but we were kind of caught up. And so he let me shoot a few call animals, um, meaning let me shoot them under. He was taking care of the bill. So we shot a couple of spring buck rams common rams spring bucks spring buck is like the country's animal that's you know spring buck you know they're, they're rugby teams the spring bucks and they're probably the most prolific abundant animal in south africa they're it'd be like the white-tailed deer yeah. for america yeah. Okay. yeah they're just everywhere and there's lots of variations so they have uh common spring bucks they have copper spring bucks blacks whites they have a paint and now they have a king springbok. And it's just a genetic mutation with pigmentation. So if you have a, a common breed with a black, you know, maybe that's where the copper comes from. Or uh, a black ram and a black ewe almost always throws a black, you know, offspring or whatever. So they've just got it to where there's lots of these variations. That's very much an, an Africa thing is to where they're... <clears throat> they've got all these different, you know, something to keep a guy coming back. I mean, if you look at SCI and all those things, it's like 
this particular zebra comes from this region, which is a different genus than this one. And so a guy's got to gotta hunt them all. And I think that's part of where that comes from. He's trying to get all the species. But I was able to shoot a couple of those uh, down in Blaukrantz. I did shoot some warthogs um, to just kind of help out. We actually had a highway issue, too, where they needed to take some uh, warthogs off the highway. And then uh, on the very last day, he let me hunt a water buck, uh, which is probably my favorite animal all total, you know, just because it's unique. It's the, it's, it's about a 400 pound antelope. The horns just kind of swoop back. You could probably see it on Instagram too. And every hair on its body is on its own gland. So it's, it's a beautiful oh, animal. It's unbelievable. And the footage is even better. And, uh, you know, as soon as you get back, you wish you took more footage. But that hair is long. That hair is like four and a half or five inches long. And it sits on end. Uh, and they ve are very much a, a, a water animal. It, it looks like an animal that, depending on the angle that you're looking at it, it's either going to it's gonna be a different color. Meaning right. I, it looks a little lighter and then darker areas but it, it almost looks like you know kind of from different you know like a turkey Absolutely. when you when you look at it there's iridescent and you kind of look at it from different angles and you know copper comes out and kind of you know aquamarine color yeah. and just different it, that's what it looks like on this no and you're 100 percent right and that's a great description of it and because that hair is like on its own like little gland it's very very erect right so it sticks out so in having like a pale hide underneath and then a hair that goes from dark brown to a lighter gray, I always say it's like an old sport flick card, man. You baseball card, you could kind of twist it, and you get two different kind of sheens and images. It's it's very much like that, um, and it's beautiful. It does you don't see in that picture, but on his rump, there's a big white outline. They call it the target, and so he's got that you know kind of that chocolatey body with a big white outline, and um, <clears throat> just a really neat animal. It's kind of the end of the hunt for. All of us. It was the last thing we took, and just, just, just a great day. We did shoot a um, uh, a mountain reed buck. Uh, we chased a hog deer for a while. There, they have some hog deer in there from India. They've really, really done well. And uh, but they, you know, they had they had shed a few of them were wearing horns, but it was just kind of, you don't know if you're gonna shoot one, go over there, and there's gonna be two horns laying there. It's just it was too dicey of a time to shoot one. Um, and then we also took a gemsbuck there, a really, really, really nice gemsbuck. And I think that was Tell me about this lion photo in your in That is um that was on our rhino that was on our rhino stock. So Good night. Uh, this it looks like you're about ten yards from this thing. <laughs> well, I I'm using a pretty good zoom, but we're about fifty yards from that one. And that's where I was just man, I just that's an amazing photo. His eyes are so. Was he staring you down? Yeah, just staring us down. We just walked on by, and I just that's the part that man, critters <laughs> they don't like me in general, especially big cat. I joke uh, around about it, but it's kind of true. So there's a in Palm Desert. There's like a I think it's I can't remember what it's called, but it's essentially like a little zoo. Two different occasions, two different places. I've walked around the corner, crowd of people there. I walk around the corner and I look, and I look up at a mountain lion and have that thing literally come out and hit the glass, bust his nose, trying to get, <laughs> trying, to, trying to get me. I'm like, that's weird. And I had it happen at Irvine Regional a couple years ago. Same scenario, cats roaring and trying to crawl through there, getting me. I'm like, what in the world? 
And we were down at this uh, cheetah park, not too far from Blaukrantz. We go in there, and I'm, I've got this history with these cats. I walk around, and I don't know what it is about me. We see all these anim animals. We're with a group of about 30. We show up, and the, there's two big lions in this enclosure. And we turn around that corner. Those lions saw me and jumped up and roared at me. <laughs> and I'm like, what in the world? This is all before. <laughs> this is all before we go down there with these wild lions running around. I didn't want to look at them. <laughs> I was never too far from that 500 nitro man. I don't want to be called a sissy, but I did not like those uh, lions, man. It was crazy. What was it like for you loving to clean and boil skulls, and you're so into that having all of those animals around? And did you notice? Did they do anything with their skulls differently, or? How did all that go down? They did. And, you know, I really, really, I'm still a skull freak, right? And I really wanted to get involved and talk shop and secrets. And um, I was able to do that at TAMS. They're, the way they do it versus the way I do it is, um, it's the same method. Essentially, they're boiling, but it was crude. And I wanted to be like, man, if you could just get a power washer up in this place, I could show you how to double your production. Um but they do a good job. Everything that's going to come back here, all 50-some animals that are coming back here, I will have to kind of degrease and redo. But, you know, we harvested a lot of little animals too, like um, an animal called a rock rabbit. Um, or uh, the blacks call it a dussy. And I think the, the genus name is a hyrex. It's the closest relative to the elephant. It's just a little tiny rock rabbit. And um, they shoot them. It's just target practice, like us shooting ground squirrels and prairie dogs. And I wanted to save the skulls because it's the coolest little skull. So <clears throat> they said, yeah, you're welcome to do whatever. So those are the few things that I skinned. And they were like, uh, wow, <laughs> really? You're going to save that? I'm like, yeah, I think it's fantastic. And I saved um, – uh, some monkey skulls. I saved all, you know, everything that was there. And there was tons and tons of like, every time you turn around, there'd be a deadhead. You'd see like a, a kudu bull laying there or uh, a water buck head. And I'm like, well, what is that? And they're like, that's just literally just old age, just poor condition. They just, that's it. And I wanted to pick up and keep all that stuff. <laughs> you know, you can't, but I, would, I think all that stuff should be on a wall somewhere for somebody. But, um, but I loved it, and we, we did talk a, a little bit with the skull work, and it's just it's just not a that, to them. You know, there's always there's the professional hunter, and then there's the guys that do that, and I just wasn't around the guys that do that. Um, but I do have some film of their process. You know, they don't have propane boilers or anything. They just make big fires under these big sinks and put skulls in there, and then guys are just cutting and cleaning and scraping. And they have what looked like an old bathtub full of uh, a whitening or a degreasing mix or something like that. And I don't know how many skulls have been in that batch, but it's a lot. So that that part was neat for me to see. However, I didn't I didn't get to do much of that. Um, and I kept trying to remind myself that I got a a job to do that to film. Yeah, you were there to film. Yeah. So. But I would have you know I would have loved to crawl back in there and you know. You know, just I'm sure there's something I would learn from them, um, and I'm sure I could tell them a thing or two too. And we just just never really had the opportunity. 
like your experience in Africa, is it like a deal that in another time of your life, you know, when you don't have the responsibilities and such that you have now, is it a place that you could see yourself, you know, being there an entire hunting season and just engulfing yourself in it and just like, you know, completely helping and doing all the stuff and just loving it completely. Yeah. And it was a place where, um, it was easy to identify, um, with, with the, with the professional hunters and I, how we had some common ground there and how my interest was very much toward the animal. And like I said, kind of the smell and the odors and the glands and all I kind of wanted, you know, it's just, just natural hunter instinct. I wanted to see all that and experience. And I, you know, they did, I asked, I said, can I help these guys gut? Can I help them skin? And they're like, you can, you know, it's not important. I'm like, I kind of just want to see it. Right. These Elands have, I don't know how many stomachs, like three or four stomachs. Our critters don't have a dozen stomachs, right? I just kind of want to crawl in there. I'm not trying to be gross. I'm trying to try to learn it. And, um, but I loved helping load the animals and, all that stuff. So I could, I mean, I could go over as a, if I didn't have the responsibilities now, I would have loved to grown up kind of as an apprentice up there and, and learn how they do it. They're really, really, really good hunters. And I think they're really good in their environment just because they do so much more of it than us. Like we, you know, a guy that hunts a lot may get 90 days a year, right? The average guy over there is hunting 200 days a year. Yeah. What kind of optics did they have? Most everybody was running Swarovski optics. Yeah. Yeah. You know, best of the best, whether they bought it, whether they bought it that way or it was tipped or whatever, but everybody was running um, EL ranges, right? Because there was always a range deal. In Blaukrantz, you won't shoot much over 100, 150 yards. TAMs uh, would not be uncommon for you to shoot 400 yards, especially on spring bucks and stuff. Yeah. Spotting scope, I never saw anybody carry or have one. Shooting sticks were great. The shooting sticks were neat. We uh, we took a couple of trigger sticks with us. They had the classic wooden pole uh, African sticks, too. I don't know what they're made of, but there's a three-poled stick. And then uh, one of the gentlemen down there in Blaukrantz had a set of sticks from Denmark that I almost don't know how to describe it. It's like if you took two double sticks and you tied them together at the bottom, but the top would open up. You set the front of the rifle and the back of the r- rifle in, and the further you open it, the lower it goes. Does that make sense? And mm-hmm. Man, it was, as far as a standing and shooting, it's the most rock-solid setup I've ever seen. I took a picture of it in the magazine. I'll have to send it to you. But um, all that stuff was fascinating. And I, w- I just love the fact that when we spotted an animal and we got out of the truck, they knew the means and methods and things that like I would just, they're, they're killers. They're just killers. And I would, maybe you and I would get there and we would take a completely different approach. Like you and I would check the wind. We'd crawl up and over around and back around a Canyon. And you know, that's, they just, they knew how to get in there and get it done. And they, they, they're so comfortable around those animals and, and each species is different. You know, a lot of dikers don't diker little tiny deer with little tiny stub horns. A lot of dikers get killed. Most dikers get killed at night. To shoot a daytime diker is very rare. So, one of the things we had to shoot, we were walking and I had seen a diker female, and I stopped and told him I zoomed in on the female, and he sets up the sticks and says, "Shoot the male." I can't. I physically can't see the male. I don't know where it is. And he just knew the second we seen that female that there would be a male right in and around that thing, and. Um, 
I don't know. It was, I just something I would have known, right? I wouldn't, I wouldn't have known. They rut at different times. They breed at different times. They got fawns hit the ground at different times, and uh, they just, I'm just very, very, very uh, impressed all the way around. That's really cool. I, it almost seems like after you go through something like that, that's almost like a shock to your system. Then you come back and land and, you know, you're back to your regular life. You're kind of looking around like, huh, this is totally different. And I just was in a, you know, yeah, you were in another world, but, you know, in essence, it's just a hundred, 180 degree change from you know, where you're at in Southern Cal right now, where I'm at in Colorado, I, I imagine you had that feeling. It, I did. And that's a, it's funny you say that. Cause I, you know, I called home and was able to get a hold of my wife and the kids every night, but <clears throat> man, I really had to pinch myself. I never thought my, my work would love that, but I never thought work. I never thought responsibilities. I was so enamored by the whole thing. I was so engulfed into everything that was going on. You know, as the trip goes on, and I actually heard you say it in another podcast, you know, a lot of our hunters kind of started to wear down, harder to get out of bed, all that stuff. The further we got into that hunt, man, I'd be tapping my toes sitting on the back of that truck. Like, are we going? What do we do? You know, I, the more we did it, I, I the more I wanted it. Um, and I never really kind of hit the wall. Like, it's finally done until we started to travel home. And then I was like, that was awesome. Yeah, you know, um, <laughs> I, I've got a lot of hunters that have hunted with me and they continue to text me throughout the year, eat, sleep and kill because <laughs> I, I mean, it, it sounds kind of barbaric, but the reality is I love it kind of when you can get into eat, sleep and kill mode yeah. where, and, and not necessarily kill, um, hunt. Oh, yeah. but, but hunt, but I say, I, I mean, it's the term I use eat, sleep and kill where all you are worrying about is focusing on the hunt and eat, sleep, and kill. I mean, that's all you're doing. And it, for me, it usually takes about a week, ah, five days to really get where I'm just focused and that's what I'm doing and kind of, you know, tune everything else out um, and then get in your own rhythm of eat, sleep, and kill. And, right. you know, once you can get in that moment and you know, get that going. It's, it seems like that's when I'm performing at my best. And, um, you know, I think it's hard. I think it's hard for everybody, including myself when you've got all your other outside influences, you know, family, responsibility, job, you know, work, the whole thing. Um, but man, when you can get in that zone of eat, sleep and kill, it's, it's awesome. Oh, I can't agree more. And it does, it takes a while. I, I say it all the time. I talk with people like, Hey, how come you don't hunt more in California? And I said, you know, the reason I don't spend the bulk of my time here is because, you know, if I get a call for a problem or anything and I'm four or five hours from home, I can just drop what I'm doing and come home and deal with it. But if I run to Wyoming, Montana, somewhere else, when I'm 20 hours from the house, I really buckle down and start to become effective and I find a way to deal with those problems here another way and I block it out and I focus and that's kind of how this trip went for me. Um, the hardest part for me filming hunts like this is reminding myself that I'm here to film because something hits the ground. I'm wanting to help position. I'm wanting to gut it and skin it and help load it and I just like, oh crud, that's that's what somebody else does, and it's it's not my nature to just to sit around and have that done. But the hardest part for me is to kind of remember that because I get so caught up in the moment, and 
yeah, for this hunt, because I was so far from home, about three days, I was laser focused on what we were doing. And, you know, you're, you're like a big sponge. You're trying to soak up like all of it and uh, just trying to get your head around how this ugly, ugly, ugly warthog just eats grass. And he's about the best eating critter on the whole planet. And they're prolific and uh, just all of it, just all of it. It was, um, it's worth doing. I would tell somebody, if you ever have reservations about Africa, it is probably one of the most affordable um, hunts you can do. And it is extremely, like, I think I should, uh, I think we were able to har harvest a, uh, a bless buck, a call bless buck for $50. Wow. Right. Just, that's crazy to me. This is crazy. Wow. That is, that's really cool. That's really cool. Well, um, tell us about the films, uh, how people can find you, how they can watch the films and, um, yeah, what's the best way? So, he, um, most of it will show up on, <clears throat> on YouTube. Um, uh, my YouTube channel is white bone creations hunting and <clears throat> I'm going to actually put together a finished film for the owner um, the, the, the gentleman that took me and his family and I'm going to have them look through it and really pick it apart and make sure everything is what they're looking for. And then I'd like to break that film up into shorter films, like six individual films and I'll put them up on YouTube. I'll send a little message, maybe even a trailer through Instagram, which is also white bone creations and just say, Hey, new film coming. And I think it's going to break down into the rhino hunt the Cape Buffalo hunt, a bunch of planes game stuff. I'm going to do a big coverage. We didn't talk about it, but a big coverage on uh, hunting bush pigs up there over bait. It is crazy exciting and entailed and a lot of work. And then um, I might just do a, just a storyline on Africa in general for people that were, were like me and, and just, you know, could take it or leave it with Africa. Um, but if you're if you're looking to do it, it is comfortable environment. It's safe, no shots, no bugs. The times where there, none of that stuff. And so all the all the stuff that gives people reservation to go there, I think is uh, is a myth. Um, but I'm going to try and tell all those stories. So I would think the soonest we would see something come up would be uh, about this time next week. I'll have the first one done, kind of approved, um, and I think it will be that Blaukrantz planes game stuff. And, uh, you know, we got about, because I, because we had three shooters or four shooters and just one camera guy, it's, uh, you're probably going to see about <clears throat> eight hunts on there. So. Awesome. Awesome. Well, can't wait for it. Uh, it's going to be going to be awesome. I know you do a great job and, um, just, Really enjoyed uh, getting to hear all about it. It's a place I've never been. It's a place that I want to go. Um, and uh, I think you painted a pretty good picture. And, you know, it's uh, probably going to be hard for you, you know, with the fall right around the corner. You you basically just went on a, a hunt of a lifetime, <laughs> you know, almost to just re-engage and get back into your your, your fall plans. Sure. Um, but I'm sure it won't take you long. You'll be right back into it and doing your thing. So yeah. um, thanks for coming on. Thanks for sharing with us. Uh, love White Bone Creations. Love the YouTube channel. Thank you. Uh, encourage the listeners to follow you on Instagram. 
And uh, yeah, until I talk to you next time, buddy, God bless. All right. Likewise, brother. Thanks for having me on. All right, buddy. Sounds good. Thanks, Ryan. Bye.